Hi, everybody. Thank you all for being here. Um, as you know, my name is Vartan uh, for Football Armor Apologetics. Uh, this is a very, very special uh, session that we're doing here today. Uh, the person right here in front of me uh, is born on July 6, 1964, and is an American Bible scholar and Jewish theologian. He's a professor of Bible at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and a senior fellow of the Shalom Hartman Institute. He's a former director of the Crown Family Center for Jewish Studies at Northwestern University. Uh, his research encompasses around areas of biblical theology, history of Israelite religion, and modern Jewish thought. He's the author of A, a Prophet Reads Scripture, an allusion in Isaiah 40 to 60, uh, 66, The Bodies of God in the Ancient World of Israel, by which we'll touch upon in a second, uh, and Revelation and Authority at Sinai in Jewish Scripture and Tradition. And uh, he was elected at the membership in the Biblical Colloquium in 2014 and in the membership of the American Academy for Jewish Research. The man in front of me today is Dr. Benjamin D. Sommer. Sir, it is a delight to have you. Thanks for Thank you here. for inviting me. It's a delight to be here. Awesome. And it, it, is, it actually is, as I showed before, uh, the topic of today is the bodies of God in the ancient world of Israel. And like for those who can see, like I studied this, this subject very diligently. Um, it is a technical subject, but that's something I really like. I like long, long conversations so that we can like pack out uh, spiritual meat, as I'd like to say. Um, so my first question to you is what sparked your interest in this topic and how did this, this book came to be? That's actually a very interesting question, and um, gosh, I, I, I tell me if I'm going on a little bit too long with this answer. Go ahead, as long that, as you want. The way this book came into being is a little bit unusual, I think, for an academic book. I was searching for a topic for my second book. My first book was a much more specific study of the, um, the poetry found in the last part of the book of Isaiah, for my second book, I wanted to do something a bit broader. And I was just curious about, first of all, I was just curious about some terminology that shows up in the Hebrew Bible that refers to the presence of God. There are a number of Hebrew terms, often translated as glory, name, face, that refer to God's presence in the Bible. Uh, in Hebrew, these would be kavod, shame and panim to mention three of the most prominent ones. And I was just wondering why are these different names or these different terms used to, to describe God's presence in the world? Why do biblical authors want to use different technical terms to describe God as being present in some way or maybe in a number of different ways in the world? And I was generally just, I think, interested in the whole question of divine presence and divine absence in part, I think, just as a religious person who is troubled by divine absence in the world um, and interested in divine presence in the world. So I think that there was sort of an academic interest as a scholar. I'm just, I was just wondering about the use of these technical terms. And as a religious person, I was interested in the subject itself uh, of divine presence. So I decided to... to uh, write a book on this subject. And I wrote up a proposal uh, for an American foundation describing what I'm going to do you know, in this book. Although the truth is I really had no idea. Um, 
but I was able to, uh, on the basis of this proposal, I got a sabbatical. I went to Israel for a year and I spent a year really just reading. I, I think a lot of scholars, when they start writing a book, they have a very specific idea of what they wanna do. They already have a thesis and they're, they're kind of charging towards that thesis. I really did not have a thesis. I didn't have a specific answer to a question. I didn't really even have a very specific question other than what's going on with all these different terms for divine presence in the Bible. So instead of really focusing on supporting a thesis that I, I already had, I spent most of the year just reading, reading biblical texts in Hebrew, reading some texts that were related in other languages from the ancient world, and reading a great deal of, uh, of secondary literature, a great deal of modern scholarship by Christian and Jewish scholars on the Bible and on ancient Near Eastern religions. And towards the end of the year, I still didn't really have much written, which, which was kind of a problem. In the meantime, completely unrelated to my book project, I had promised two friends of mine who are also professors that I, I would write an essay for a book they wanted to edit on the theme of beginnings in the Bible. And so I thought I've got to somehow figure out an essay on the theme of beginnings that would relate somehow to the idea of divine presence. And I noticed that a lot of texts in the Bible that talk about a beginning also talk implicitly or explicitly about the theme of exile, or talk about the difference between home and exile. The Garden of Eden story talks about home and exile. The, the Adam and Eve are kicked out of, uh, of, um, uh, kicked out of the Garden of Eden. The beginning of the Jewish people of the Israelite nation, Abraham is to told to leave his home and to go to a new home so that there's some question, okay, it's about home and exile, but there's a bit of an ambiguity as to what the home is and what the exile is. This, this happens a lot with texts that deal with beginning. And I realized that, well, maybe that relates to the idea of where, when God is at home and when God is at exile and where is God at home and where is God in exile, is the planet earth, is our world a place that it's appropriate for God to be? so that it's God's home or is God in exile to the extent that God is interacting with us on the planet earth. In any event, I thought, okay, that'll be a, a, a topic that deals with um, both with this beginnings theme that I promised to, to my friends I would write about and the theme that I had told my university I was writing a book about. I wrote a long, long article. And then I went and spoke to a professor at Hebrew University, Yair Zakovitz. He's retired by now. He was uh, already by then a very, very prominent biblical scholar. And he was sort of my mentor for the year that as a junior faculty member, a younger scholar, I was spending the year in, in Jerusalem at the Hebrew University. We were used to meet. We would just talk through various issues. He never gave me any advice the whole year. The closest he came to ever giving me advice as a mentor, because he was officially, he had the job of being my mentor at the Hebrew University, the closest thing he, he, he did to giving me advice was he read this really long article I wrote, and he said to me in Hebrew, He said, you don't take pity on the reader. <laughs> in other words, you're not very nice to your reader. <laughs> that was the only piece of advice he gave me, and even then it was only advice by implication. But I realized he was right. This article was too long. I figured out a way to make it into two different articles. And then I had these two different articles that could 
one of which I sent to my friends, uh, my, my friend's collection of essays that they were writing. And I, I was able to say plausibly when I came back to my university, okay, I've written something on this topic. I'm making progress on this book. But I still didn't really exactly know where the book was going to go. I had read a lot. I had learned a lot. I had thought a lot. I'd even written a bit, but I still didn't really know where the book would go. A year or two later, another friend asked me to come to Indiana University to present a paper at a conference there that dealt with the theme of, um, gosh, what was the theme of that? Um, uh, selfhood, the idea of the self in right. the ancient world. And I thought, well, I've got to do something on the self that will relate somehow to this idea of divine presence. So I thought, I'll write about the div about divine selfhood. What is, how is God's self as a person portrayed in the Bible? And I figured, I've got to talk for 20, 25 minutes. If I can just come up with 10 pages, it's enough for me to go to this conference and it'll somehow contribute to this book project in which I'm not making much progress. So I had an idea. I sat down to write up the idea. Um, it took me like three months. And when I was done, it was 86 pages long. It was much too long for my friend's conference. But I realized, oh my gosh, this is the book. This is the book on divine presence that I've been trying to, to write for a long time. Instead of shortening these 86 pages down to 10 pages, I just need to make them a little longer. And I realized that these 86 pages could become three different chapters, which are actually chapters one, two, and right. three of the book. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that those two articles I had written when I was in Israel about home and exile, those two articles actually unfolded an implication of the basic insight that I had, that I have, that I'm expressing in these 86 pages. In other words, they kind of come after those 86 pages, even though I had written them two years earlier, but they actually relate to, to, to this topic as the implication of what I was talking about in these 86 pages. Um, then I actually was able to get another sabbatical, spent another year in Israel. And during that year, I took those two articles, I took those 86 pages, I put them together, I rewrote a lot of material, I added some material, uh, and that's how the book was written. It, it was a very odd way of write, writing a book. It's not, it, it's a sort of risky way. It's not the way most scholars work. I just, I kind of let the ideas take me where they would take me. And they took me in, in a number of surprising directions. The direction they took me in terms of the Trinity was very surprising for me. Um, and instead of sort of imposing my idea on the literature, I, I spent many years on the book. I let the book just, I let those ideas and those texts take me in, in the direction that they took me. And that's how, that's how the book ended up being written. And in a sense, it was written backwards. I wrote the end of the book first, and then I wrote the beginning of the book, um, even though I think it flows pretty well in the order in, in which the chapters are now. That, that was an amazing explanation of how the book came to be. And I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not uh, that much of a book reader. Actually, I have a couple of books around me. But I do notice, of course, that when you're writing a book, you already have a thesis in your mind. You have something to prove. And then you work, work doing like a reverse psychology in order to, to, to get a point across. But you were actually like all the way throughout time, you were letting the work do itself as a figure of speech. As, yeah, as, as, exactly. as, your, as your teacher in Jerusalem said, uh, you are not very nice for the reader. But then the question is, did you do that on purpose? I would say no, right? Oh, no, no, I, I, certainly not. 
I mean, and he was right about that. That long, that article was too long. It, it had too many twists and turns, and it worked better as two separate articles. Um, and uh, it, so at, at that point, I, I hope that I was nice to the reader. Um, but the, the the odd coincidence is that those two those two articles, which which in a revised form became chapters uh, four and five of the book, um, they really sort of describe an implication of what I talk about, especially in chapters two and three of the book. Um, so I wrote them in I wrote them in the opposite order, but um, yeah, I really just kind of let let the material take me where it where it would take me. And so it took me longer to write this book than than a lot of professors take when, when they're writing their books. I think I had a lot more fun with it than than some professors have when they're writing books because um, the material really surprised me and it, it took me in directions I wouldn't have anticipated at all at the beginning. Yeah. Like, like there is, there has become for the past, I don't know how many years for the, there is this category of books by which this book in, in my perception came into be like other books are, for instance, are also like from uh, Daniel Boyrin borderlines, somewhat mm -hmm. of this, of the same uh, theme that you're touching. touching yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, Alan F. Siegel to powers in heaven. This mm -hmm. also has been a very influential book made. I like I like devoured this book. There are like so many markings as you, as you can see. But there's mm -hmm. also uh, one else. Uh, it's a very big, big book of Moshe Idel, Ben mm -hmm. Sonship. And you referenced him in your book at a particular moment. Yeah, that book is, uh, I, I don't know. Wait, are, I don't know if, if people can see, see my, uh, if this will be, uh, uh, you know, on a screen. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Sonship is... Um, probably a little oh you have it there on, there. on the <laughs> yeah it's right that uh right right on top of my finger right yeah that's the moshi edel section right there the black <laughs> one that's that's sonship yeah oh awesome yeah well, we're going to touch upon moshi edel uh, in a moment but what i do notice that there's within the judaic uh exeget exegetical scholarly realm it's it's it's, it's amazing to see how it actually like comes into everything that comes out of it gotcha but, i should add by the way alan siegel's books are over there but they're not on camera they're kind of off right. camera um not that not the one that you've got but in, but another yeah. one what, yeah. one of his is over there there's also another one coming in i ordered it two weeks ago which is uh, peter schaefer's two powers in heaven same thesis mm. as, as alan of siegel's he's yeah. also one of a uh, jewish renowned scholar etc so yeah, no, and Schaefer is a great scholar of Jewish studies, a very, very important scholar of Jewish studies. He himself is not Jewish. Um, right. He's um, uh, a German Christian. I, mean, I don't know if he's religious or not, uh, but he's a, a tremendously learned and creative scholar of, of ancient Judaism and medieval Judaism. He really works in both areas. Yeah, I cannot wait to, to read his books. Um, but a moment ago, you were referring towards uh, selfhood. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, a, a very common theme within your book is this, uh, this, this term that you coined, fluidity of selfhood. And mm -hmm. as I was reading uh, your book, of course, uh, being someone who has studied the Bible for a couple of years, of course, you have to be a bit satiated with the scriptures in order to make the connections. Like the reference I always give it is like a crossword puzzle. Now, like, like there's all these gaps and then, then you're trying to figure out, wait, the solution to that is that, and then you can do that, and then you can do that. So all these uh, verses coming to, coming together and make this uh, cohesive argument, like a, a, a big argument. Then you 
But the thing I learned first time ever were, of course, the shim, the kabot. There was the third one. Hanim. Hanim, exactly. Hanim. Like, mm-hmm. And I was always uh, interested in um, how did the Bible speak about God? And as you mentioned before, you, that was the first question. Like the, the, the presence of God within uh, creation, for instance. But what is your own understanding of fluidity in the, in the selfhood? How, do, how did you come up with that? So I, th- this idea of fluidity is found, I think, in many ancient Near Eastern religions, not only in ancient Israelite religion. Um, I really noticed it first studying Babylonian and Assyrian texts and also studying ancient Canaanite texts. And something that confused me a little bit as I was reading those texts um, was that you often would get multiple gods or goddesses who had the same name, like Ishtar, let's say, or Baal, but they, they had different locations. There were local Ishtars or local Baal gods who had a connection to a certain place. And so they were sort of different from each other. They could even be mentioned together as if though they're different characters in a single prayer or in a single ritual. This happens actually quite quite often that the Baal of this location and the Baal of that location both receive offerings at a temple as if though they're separate gods. Um, this happens with various gods in Mesopotamia as well. Baal's more of a Canaanite god. Uh, this happens with goddesses in Mesopotamia. Ishtar is sometimes mentioned. Two different Ishtars will be mentioned in the same prayer. So they're different from each other. And yet fundamentally, they're really not that different from each other. They seem to have different identities and that they're, you, you pray to them, um, you pray to the one and you pray to the other. And yet they're almost the exact same because you pray to them separately in the same prayer or you're giving them offerings in the same ritual and they're doing the same thing. They're acting together. So they seem to be different, but also somewhat the same. Furthermore, when you leave, let's say the world of ritual and prayer, sacrifice and prayer, and you go to the the world of ancient Babylonian or Assyrian or Canaanite mythology, then there's just one of them. When, When these when these actors appear um, as characters in a myth, there's just Ishtar or there's just Baal or there's just, you know, whatever God it happens to be. And so it seems that these gods were simultaneously the same and different. There are also ancient Assyrian, Babylonian texts that seem to describe one God as being a part of another God. So that God, a, a, a God or a goddess Um, could sort of overlap with another god or goddess. When you think of all of these texts, one just gets the impression that for the ancient Babylonians, Syrians, and Canaanites, um, there is an extent to which deities had a fluid self. You know, for you and me, we're human beings, and I'm me and you're you, and that's the end of the story. There aren't two me's. Um, Even if I had an, an identical twin brother, which I happen not to, but other people do, um, we might look the same, but we're two different people. We're in two different places. We'd be, you know, living different lives. Um, you and I might have a lot of interests in common. Um, we might have a lot of similarities, but we're two different people. We don't overlap, and we don't. And as individuals, we, we don't sort of split into multiple individuals who are the same, even though we're not the same. But with the gods and goddesses of the ancient Near East, that could actually happen. 
a God could become more than one God located in several places simultaneously while remaining in essence the same God. And at least temporarily, there are texts in which the, the self of one God could manifest itself as another God or could even overlap with another God. That happens less frequently, but there are several texts where that happens or where one God is described as being an aspect or even a body part of another God. Um, that, that there are several texts that, uh, from, from Mesopotamia in which various deities are all described as being body parts of one particular deity. So the idea of the self of a God in the ancient Near East or of a goddess was different than the self of, of a human being. And, and I, I think that that's part of what made the category of God different from the category of human in the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking that I'm describing from, from Babylonia, Canaan, and Assyria. There's some evidence that this happens, I think, a little bit in, in Egypt as well. Having noticed that in, in ancient Near Eastern texts, reading very, very slowly, some parts of Genesis and Exodus especially, I noticed that you actually get a similar idea showing up occasionally in the Bible. Now, there is this idea in modern biblical scholarship, some of your listeners might know, that the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, um, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, are not a unity, but were put together from several independent documents, from several documents that had existed in ancient Israel originally on their own. Scholars usually refer to these texts as J, E, P, and D. There's some debate about the theory, but there's three or four main blocks of material, the, the P or priestly material, the D or Deuteronomic material, and then everything else, which might, might be divided between two different categories of J and E, or might not, there's disagreement on that point. What I noticed was that when the fluidity idea shows up, it shows up specifically in what some scholars call the JE material, either in the, the, the document that used to be called the J document or the one that used to be called the E document, and that P and D actually, not only do they not have this idea, they seem, I think, to be arguing against this idea. They seem to be, they seem to know about it, but they seem to not like this idea. And so I think that the idea of divine fluidity that I notice in ancient Near Eastern polytheistic texts, I think it also shows up in monotheistic texts from ancient Israel, and then other monotheistic texts from ancient Israel reject that fluidity model. Um, so, so I think that I, I really noticed this first by looking at non-biblical texts, which are closely related to the Bible. And once I saw this more clearly there, I began to see it in the Bible as well. And once I saw it in the Bible, I began to notice that other biblical authors seem to know about this idea and they don't like it and they argue against it. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. But then... But what is then would be done your own understanding of, or more like general understanding of monotheism? Would that then particularly be of the, the fundamental God of like, how do you actually make a distinction that it has, the God of Israel has like this fluidity of sulfur, but at the same time, it's also monotheism. But how, mm -hmm. what's then your understanding of monotheism in that context? Yeah, great question. Because um, initially what one might think, well, the fluidity idea shows up in Babylonia and Assyria and Canaan. It must be a, poly it's a polytheistic idea. It's a whole different way of conceiving of divinity. And 
monotheism is different. In monotheism, there's one God who has oneself. Um, but, but when you look more closely, I, I think that turns out not to be the case for a few reasons. First of all, archaic and classical Greek texts, Homer, um, Hesiod, um, even much later Greek texts um, from the time of the tragedians and, and, and even later than that, when they're talking about the gods, they're clearly polytheistic. They believe in many gods, but they never talk about this fluidity idea. They do, th these are polytheistic texts for whom the gods are more similar to human beings. They don't have fluid cells that can split into different parts while, it, while retaining a certain unity. And they, they don't overlap with each other the way they do over in the ancient Near East. So polytheism, it can have the fluidity point of view or it can have the non-fluidity point of view when it's talking about the deities. If polytheism can have a fluidity theology or a non-fluidity theology, that suggests the possibility that, well, maybe monotheism might be able to have a monotheistic fluidity theology or a non-monotheistic fluidity, uh, I'm sorry, or a monotheistic non-fluidity theology. And that's, I think, what's happening in the Bible. The texts like the JE texts or parts of Psalms or parts of Isaiah that do display what I'm calling the fluidity model, they don't believe that other gods or goddesses are, are real powers in the universe. They don't believe that it's legitimate for Israelites to pray to other gods and goddesses. They believe that Israelites should pray only to the one God. They believe that, Israelite, that, that this one God is the only creator of the universe, but they also believe that God, probably in God's graciousness, God allows God's self to manifest itself in the world in a smaller, more user-friendly, easier to confront format. And so God can manifest God's self in the world, not in God's full self, which would be frightening, overpowering, even deadly, but in some very small scale way. That's what happens, for example, to Moses at the burning bush. That's what happens to Abraham when the three visitors come to Abraham. These human characters are meeting God in those passages, but meeting God in a much, much smaller user-friendly fashion. They're not meeting other gods. They're not meeting multiple gods. So these are not polytheistic texts. These are still monotheistic texts, but they're monotheistic texts that are saying, God can make God's self available to humanity in a smaller scale format that's easier to handle. By the way, you get the, a similar idea. You get a similar idea in Babylonia, which is where you know where you are dealing with polytheism. Interestingly, you get this idea in Hinduism as well. And in Hinduism, of course, many many Hindus are polytheists. They believe in the existence of many deities, but many. Um, many Hindus are actually really monotheistic because they believe that all these different deities are, in fact, different manifestations of one single underlying reality. Um, and those deities um, are lots of smaller scale, um, smaller scale, um, how might you put this, um, you know, they're, they're smaller scales manifestations of other manifestations of this one ultimate reality. So it, it, you can get this fluidity idea showing up in 
monotheism in Judaism, and I think also in Christianity, you can get this idea showing up in purely polytheistic religions such as ancient Babylonia, and you can also get it showing up in Hinduism, which is really both a monotheistic and a polytheistic religion. There's a form of, for example, of, of Hinduism known as Advaita Vedanta. In Advaita Vedanta religion, it's certainly the case that all the deities are, manif are, are manifestations of a single reality. Um, the word for these manifestations is avatara in Sanskrit. Um, and so there you've got this idea showing up uh, in, a, in a Hindu monotheistic context. In fact, I think that the idea of an avatara, although that's a Sanskrit Indian term, I think it really does, that's a, a very appropriate way for understanding what shame and kavod and panim are right. in the Bible. That in some biblical texts, not all of them, but in some biblical texts, God's name is an avatar, an avatar of God that's available for the people of Israel um, on the planet Earth. Right. Yeah. That it, 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 scripturally speaking, what you're saying that it, 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 there are so many examples to give. One of my favorite is, of course, uh, Exodus 23, uh, 20 mm -hmm. verses 22, for instance, where. God says to Moses, listen to that angel, for my uh, Shem is in him. But then exactly. at the same time, we see in Deuteronomy 12, verse 4 up until 11, he says that my name will be among you. So, but then it's, it's I, I, and you really enjoy the way how uh, the Bible is using anthropomorphic language for God being in creation. And as you mentioned before, it's highly dangerous, but still, God uh, in his energies, like in his activities, can um, show, can uh, come into a theophany towards us without us like blowing up in an instant as, as a figure, figure speech. Yeah. So, and in that passage you, you mentioned from Exodus 23, that's a, real, a very interesting example because the word angel in that passage, I yeah. think, malach in Hebrew, that's a case where malach really is an avatar. And in other words, in biblical Hebrew, the word malach really has two different meanings. The primary meaning is messenger. So God, um, when God sends an angel in the sense of a messenger, which is the more, more frequent uh, use of the term, that's some being who's different from God, whom God is sending on a mission. Um, that being might be a heavenly being. There are cases where uh, that the term is applied to human beings, but that's somebody who's different from God. Um, and that's what we usually think of an angel as being, some heavenly creature with wings that flutters down here and does something uh, on God's behalf. But there are some cases in the Bible where the malach is clearly cl very closely related to God, is not a being separate from God on a mission for God, but is a small-scale manifestation of God on the planet Earth. Um, and so in Exodus 23, when God says, Okay, I'm not going to go with you through the through the, the Sinai wilderness because um, that would be too much. But I'll allow my manifestation to go with you, and my name is in that manifestation. So that manifestation is God, but it isn't all of God. It's a smaller scale descent of God into the universe, but it doesn't encompass all of God. Um, and, and so in that case, I'd say that the the Hebrew word malach would better be translated as avatar rather than hmm. angel in the sense that we usually think of angel. Um, it, it's not a being who's a messenger. It's actually a being who is part of God, um, but is just not all of God. 
Right. Wow. I never thought of, of the, the term of avatar free, but I understand what you mean with that word. The example that you just mentioned before makes a lot of sense. Right. And yeah. so in, in Hinduism, let's say, um, you know, one deity may be the same as another deity. So Krishna, for example, is an avatar of Vishnu. Vishnu is a, you know, a huge heavenly god. Krishna is a deity who is much more human in form. He's really the same thing as Vishnu, but he's much more approachable. Um, I think something very similar is happening in, um, something very, very similar is happening in Exodus 23, that Malach is a smaller scale manifestation of, um, uh, of, of the heavenly God, of the one heavenly God. One thing within that own context, mm -hmm. we have, we have like, of course, we have like Exodus 23, uh, 20 verse 22, but then in uh, Exodus 24 verse 1, it says, God said to Moses, come up to God. Like, I, like me as a Trinitarian, when I hear that, I would say, like, why wouldn't God say, come up to me? Mm -hmm. you know, like, like he's referring you towards the, the Shem or the angel or the avatar, for instance. So and you see, of course, um, uh, like in Genesis uh, uh, 1924, uh, Yahweh rained down from Yahweh out of heaven and certain all these type of things. But uh, what I particularly want to go into is like the anthropomorphization of God. We read, for instance, in Genesis 3, verse 8, for the call of, of God was walking in the cool of the day, for instance, implying that a voice has legs. Mm -hmm. That was yeah. one of the, the one of the first verses that you started to exit. What, what mm -hmm. Why would you actually say, what were the first Jewish exegetes talking about when they came across those type of verses? Um, the uh, so, so Jewish interpreters of the Bible, you know, in the post-Bogal uh, period, I think some of them, the truth is some of them have no problem with that anthropomorphism. It's interesting. We often think of, we nowadays think of anthropomorphic portrayals of God as being a problem. They've got to be sort of explained away. But in the ancient world, the rabbis, for example, and other ancient Jewish interpreters, I don't think that they had that same problem with anthropomorphic references to God. It was really more in the Middle Ages, as Jews became more and more familiar with Greek philosophy, especially Jews who lived in the Arab world and were able to read the works of Arabic Muslim philosophers um, and also the works of Greek philosophers that have been translated to Arabic. It's only then that, that we really see with maybe with one ancient exception right. that we really see um, Jewish philosophers unhappy about anthropomorphism. So it's with, let's say, Sajja Gaon, with Maimonides in the 10th, the 12th century, that we see um, attempts to say, well, this looks anthropomorphic, but it's only speaking symbolically. It, this isn't to be taken literally. The rabbis, though, from a thousand years earlier than that, or from 800 or 500 years earlier than that, the rabbis of the Talmudic era, the rabbis who produced the interpretations known as Midrash, they actually, I think, don't have any trouble with that anthropomorphism. They're, they're just as, uh, they're, yeah. I think that they think that God does have a body yeah. and that that body can sometimes be more or less accurately described in terms that sound similar to a human body. Not right. identical, but similar. Yeah, it's it's right. later on that Sa that Saajigaon, the first great Jewish philosopher who had a real impact within within Jewish tradition, 
and then later Maimonides, who was to this day the most important and most influential Jewish philosopher, that they insisted, no, 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 God doesn't have a body, God is not a material substance. But both the biblical authors and I think the rabbinic authors, they assumed that God was a substance, that God had some sort of physical presence, uh, maybe more than one physical presence. It was different than the physical presence of a human being in any of a number of ways, but it was still for them some sort of physical reality. Right, yeah. That's something, it is very interesting that within the domain of Judaism, uh, like, like for the, 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 the normal layman, we would, think, we would think that Judaism is monolithic. But actually, I wouldn't say it's fractured, but you have different opinions. Like the book, the book that I mentioned before, like Alan F. Siegel, he particularly uh, describes the, the Jews of the particular time as the minim, right? The heretics, like mm-hmm. those type of folks who have that type of belief, etc. But the, the exegetical discussion that they were having did leave us all these uh, documents and archaeological facts of what the people at the particular time were thinking. And mm-hmm. he, he perfectly like shows uh, the, not necessarily the person, but the arguments, like the arguments, the scriptural arguments that uh, show us the anthropomorphic language of God and the, the fluidity and uh, multiple figures of, of God in a monotheistic sense. And mm-hmm. one thing in particular, uh, you mentioned also, of course, Moshe Idel. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't read this book entirely. I, I did read like the conclusion. Like it's very intimidating. Like we'll have to take the time to, to study this one. But uh, Moshe Idel being, uh, in my opinion, a highly underrated pe- person like this book, won like in 2007, the, the prize of Israel of, of like literature of this particular book. So to say that these are fringe groups would that be like um would it be would it be honest to say that these were fringe groups um that that is the 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 kabbalistic authors who have uh, whom who who, about whom idel is speaking no i i think that a lot of 19th century german jewish central european jewish scholars wanted to describe those those mystics, those mikubalim, to use the Hebrew term, as being a fringe group. They wanted to say, no, Judaism, we're, we're all about Maimonides. We're all about this philosophical stuff. We're not anthropomorphic. Um, we're, you know, we've got a respectable religion, um, so you can let us have the right to vote. It's basically, that's a little bit of a quick summary that simplifies things a little bit, but that's what the 19th century German Jewish scholars were saying. But that wasn't really a, an accurate description of Judaism, because in saying that the, 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 the Kabbalists, the Mekubalim, uh, were a fringe, they were an awfully big fringe. Um, in Eastern Europe, for example, the, the popular um, mystical movement or the popular Kabbalistic movement that began to develop in the 18th century, known as Hasidism, you know, in, in, in large parts of, in, of Eastern Europe, most of the Jews were supporters of Hasidism. And even if you look at all of Eastern Europe together, uh, it's, you know, it's probably over half the Jews of Eastern Europe were either Hasidic or very closely related to the Hasidic Jews. Um, that's, that's a big fringe. That's, it's hard to describe that as a fringe. You go to other parts of the Jewish world, Morocco, Yemen, um, Mesopotamia, or what, what today is called Iraq, um, 
Kabbalism was very, very popular, deeply, deeply influential in those areas. So something that Moshe Edel points out, and this is already true even a few generations before Edel in the work of Gershom Shalom, um, that, uh, is that, no, this wasn't a fringe movement. This was, and in many ways continues to be, a very important form of Judaism. Right. Part of what I'm doing in, in, in my book, uh, in my book on the bodies of God, I, I mean, I just talked about this in the last chapter, is I'm trying to suggest that the, the debate between Jewish rationalists and Jewish mystics that we, we see in later Judaism, in the Middle Ages, and even um, into the modern world, it really is a much older debate um, because there were predecessors to the Kabbalists and to their ideas that God comes into the world in a number of different forms that seem um, almost to be competing with each other but are ultimately harmonious. That conception of God is actually a much, much older conception of God. It doesn't just show up in, in medieval Jewish mysticism. It has roots in the Bible itself. The medieval rationalist view of God, which focuses much more on God's unity and doesn't believe that God is in any sense fluid, that sort of stricter, more austere form of monotheism, um, I think it also has a biblical uh, a biblical predecessor. I think the book of Deuteronomy, I think the priestly literature from the Bible is a predecessor to that way of thinking. And so this much later debate um, really sort of repeats a, a debate that's happening within the biblical corpus itself. But the two sides of that debate, I don't think it's, it's, it's possible to describe them, either of them as a fringe movement. They're both, they're both very, very vital uh, in, in, the, in their own historical periods. Nice, awesome. So when I alluded towards uh, Moshe Idel, and uh, I alluded already to towards the term intra-diacal dynamism, in order to give a bit of, as, as far as, as my perception uh, allows me, like um, we see that uh, throughout the Bible, there are, as I call, powers or avatars, as you mentioned before, or in Trinitarian Christian terms, like persons. Like the word person, as you as you may know, does not necessarily imply just a human being or something that has cognition or a will or it has emotions and stuff like that. So, but what is your opinion on the what what is happening uh, within God when intradiacal dynamism, meaning there's a dynamic within the deity? But uh, what, what would be your understanding concerning like the the, the Malach Yahweh, for instance, or uh, the 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 Ruch El Kudus, like the, the Holy Spirit and this type of stuff. What would be your opinion on that particular term? So, um, Professor Idel, Moshe Idel talks about the, this sort of dynamism within God uh, as occurring in in Kabbalistic literature, and there it's actually you know fairly explicit. Um, there are descriptions of how this part of the manifestation of God within the cosmos interacts with that part. There's an extent to which different parts of God are separate from each other within the world, but they're never totally separate. They don't become independent beings whom you could pray to. That's really forbidden in standard Kabbalah. They don't become different beings and you can't pray to this one instead of that one. Um, but they have, uh, and they're always in either in harmony with, with, with each other 
or returning to harmony with each other. Maybe they return to harmony with each other ultimately in the fullness of time, but they also return to full harmony with each other on the Jewish Sabbath as they interact, as one of them moves through another to enter a third. Um, and there are descriptions of this, for example, in the Zohar, the, the classic, one of the classic works of Jewish mysticism, of how a more masculine manifestation of God in the universe enters into um, the what's known as the Shekhinah or the Malchut, which is a more feminine aspect of God in the universe. Um, and that description, that, that coming together is described actually in sexual, in sexual terms. Um, that's what happens within God on the Sabbath. If you're describing these two aspects of God as essentially having sex with each other, that's a dynamic relationship. Something's happening between these two sides. Um, and yet the Kabbalists don't consider themselves to be polytheists. These aren't different beings. These are just different manifestations, different sides, different aspects, different faces of a single being. Um, so there's an extent to which um, the deity's manifestations in this world are different manifestations, but they either are in harmony with each other or they, they come into harmony with each other um, in the Messianic era or on the Sabbath, which is a little bit of a precursor of the Messianic era that recurs every seven days. So, so I think that's very roughly, very, very in a very quick fashion, what um, what Moshe is talking about, what Moshe Adel is talking about when he's talking about this dynamism that happens within the deity. What I'd like to suggest is that already in the Bible, there are hints of something similar. Um, that in, in the Bible, for one thing, you at least have these different manifestations of God. And in some parts of the Bible, like the J.E. texts from the Pentateuch, um, there can be more than one manifestation. There can be God's name, but also there can be God's face. And they overlap with each other, but, not, but they're not the exact same thing as each other. I don't think that the Bible goes into a description and a story a narrative the way the Zohar does in Kabbalah of these interactions. But if nothing else, I think that they're occasionally implied, um, especially because part of this idea of God's fluidity in the Bible is that some biblical texts, they're a minority. I, I wouldn't say they're just a fringe, but they are definitely a minority of the biblical texts suggests that God can become present in physical things, in physical objects, in particular in stone pillars, like the pillar that Jacob sets up in Bethel or Luz in the book of Genesis. Um, they can, God can also become present in wood or in a bush. For example, the bush that, um, uh, Exodus the bush Exodus G, that, where, where Moses sees the, the Malach Adonai, which I would translate not as angel of God, but avatar of God. We know from ancient Canaanite religion that a male God would sometimes be present in a, in a, um, in a stone pillar. And there was a goddess who, became, who was present in a bush the name, or, or in a tree. The name of that goddess was Asherah. In the Bible, the word Asherah shows up dozens and dozens and dozens of times. But when you look through every single one of them, there are only a handful of cases. You can count them on one hand 
where the word Asherah is referring to the goddess or to a, an object that is associated with the goddess. In the vast majority of cases, the Asherah is some sort of object that may actually be, be sacred to the, to the God of Israel, the God whose name would be spelled Y-A-H-W-E-H, which following Jewish tradition, I don't, I don't pronounce out loud. And there are some passages in which it's quite clear that there are very zealous monotheistic worshipers of that God, of the one God, who use an Asherah in their worship in the temple. There are temples that actually contain an Asherah, Israelite temples that contain an Asherah. And by the time we're talking about these texts from the 8th century, the 7th century, the term there isn't being used in reference to the goddess Asherah. It's actually just a name for a wooden pole or some sort of tree that is not merely a symbol, but is actually thought of as a manifestation of the one God. Now, in older Canaanite temples, and maybe in older Israelite temples, probably in, in some older Israelite temples, it's probably the case that the temple had both a pillar made of stone and a bush or a tree or a wooden stick. And the pillar was thought of as being a manifestation of the God uh, whose name is spelled Y-A-H-W-E-H. -E and the, the, the bush or the wood or the tree is understood as being a manifestation of the goddess Asherah, who probably was thought of as being God's wife. But by the time we get to the book of Kings or the book of Hosea, which mention an Asherah and they don't mention it disapprovingly, they don't disapprove of the Asherah, I think it's clear that for them, the Asherah was a manifestation of the God Hashem. That as, as monotheism took greater and greater root in Israel, Hash, the, the God, the, the one God sort of took over the role of both God and goddess. Um, and so the Asherah that was present in the Israelite temple was not now thought of as being a symbol of this other goddess who was God's wife. It's just thought of as being a manifestation of God himself. And if that's the case, then there are these two very different kinds of representations of the one God, one of which is more clearly masculine, one of which is more clearly feminine. One can imagine them interacting, although there, there are no biblical texts that describe that explicitly. Um, but I think that when Kabbalah, centuries and centuries, in fact, millennia later, describes one aspect of God is having sex with another aspect, I don't think that that's as radical and new an idea as one might initially assume it is. I think that that's actually a reappearance of an idea that was there all along, that because God is not literally male or female, or because God is simultaneously male and female, um, God can have sex with God. Um, but that's not sex of one being with another. That, that's something different than what we would literally think of yeah. a, a, as sexual. Like, for instance, uh, God begets in his own way, not in our way, for instance. Correct. And, and yeah. when we say God has sex with God, we have to be uh, very considered in, in, in what type of way we're, we're looking at. But I get what you're pointing Not yeah. in a physical way, because God never mm -hmm. begets in a physical way in the, in, in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. um, that in the Hebrew Bible, it's a really important point that God is not a sexual being. And yet lurking in the background of some biblical texts, not the priestly ones, not the Deuteronomic ones, but, but uh, the J.E. texts, lurking behind them 
is maybe a little bit of a cultural memory of a feminine and a masculine side of God. And that becomes much, much more prominent in Jewish mysticism over a thousand years later. Right. But there, there are certain cases within the, the Bible where, for instance, in Isaiah 63, verse 14, or Isaiah 66, I would say Isaiah 66, 13, I don't know. It says that um, God has looked upon her kid as a mother. Or uh, in, in Proverbs eight twenty two, it says that 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 the the, mm -hmm. the wisdom of God was brought forth, etc. Like the, the, he begot the wisdom. So there is like this feminine way of ascribing towards God, but that's also, of course, uh, allegorical. But as you mentioned before, God is not male or female, or male and female at the same time, which is a very interesting topic. Right. You want to say something? Right. That last part of the book of Isaiah. Um, so you mentioned sixty six thirteen. This theme shows up earlier also from 40 through 66. There are multiple cases in which a simile or a metaphor, right. usually actually a simile, is used in which God is compared to a mother. God is like a mother comforting her children. Um, that happens again and again, especially in, in the last part of the book of Isaiah, that God is compared to a mother. Um, there's a scholar named um, Mayor Gruber from uh, Ben-Gurion University in Israel, who has written on this. He has a collection, a, a book called The Motherhood of God. Um, yeah, I've, I think I've heard an, of it. I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It contains an essay that goes through all of these passages uh, in Isaiah 40 through 66. It's a, it's a consistent tendency of that section of the Bible. Another scholar, Mark Brettler, who teaches now at Duke University, used to teach at Brandeis University in the, in the United States, he wrote an article in which he goes through some of those metaphors and similes that Gruber points out. And Mark Brettler notices that very, very often when, when these passages in Isaiah compare God to a mother, they also compare God to something very masculine, to a warrior, for example. Or they say God is like a mother, but then they say God is not like a mother. They seem to want to give us multiple contradictory metaphors and similes to describe God. And Brettler suggests this is because they want to remind us that none of these are literally true. God isn't a father. Mm -hmm. God isn't a mother. God isn't a warrior. Um, um, God is all of, God is like all of these things, but God isn't any of the, these things. Mm -hmm. And those are texts I think that, um, that really want to remind us these are only comparisons, these are only similes, these are only figures of speech, because they're all trying to describe a reality that is beyond language. Right. As, as you 100% know, Isaiah 55, verse 8, for my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways higher than your ways. And But still, at the same time, I, me personally, I am of the conviction that the, spy, that the Bible speaks in uh, anthropocentric language, meaning that the human mind can fathom it. Uh, that we have, as Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, that God has put eternity in our hearts. We have like this faculty in order to, uh, yeah, in order to wrestle with God as, as, as he has done with, with Jacob as a metaphorically speaking. So mm -hmm. there is this aspect that we cannot know him, which I think every theist agree with, agrees with that. And then there's just another part where uh, we are invited to know, or there there are, are some clues about him that we our curiosity just wants to wants to uh, investigate more into. Right? Yeah, so I, I think in Isaiah we're invited to know God, 
we're reminded that we can't really know God because as you point out in 55a, God is just outside of our, our ability to quite conceptualize. But in some ways we're, we're invited to, to sort of misunderstand God in a number of overlapping but competing ways. And that set of the right set of misunderstanding sends us in the, in the correct direction. Right. In a way, I think that what's happening with these fluidity texts, now Isaiah 6, 55 or 40 through 66 is not a fluidity text. It's not one of the texts that has this fluidity idea. But I think that the fluidity texts in their own way are trying to reckon with the problem of anthropomorphism. Um, that when we, when we anthropomorphize God, when we attribute a human kind of a body to God, we're minimizing God in a way that's very, very problematic. So what these fluidity texts are doing is they're saying, well, God has many persons, God has many selves, God has many bodies even in the world that are different from each other, but overlapping, and they're all merely manifestations of a heavenly reality. But even when God is being described in a very anthropomorphic way in one of these, flu what I'm calling the fluidity texts, like you mentioned, Genesis 3, where God is walking through the garden, God or God's voice has legs because God is walking. Or, ex or Genesis 18, where three different men appear to Abraham, and at least one of them, possibly all three of them, are God, but not all of God. Um, in texts like that, I think that we're being reminded, well, God looks on the one hand, very, very human. In, in Genesis 18, Abraham doesn't even realize that he's dealing with God initially. These people, looks, these men look so, so human. He just thinks he's dealing with it was, actual It was human. washing their feet and he was giving them food. Like you right. mean. Yeah. And he has no idea that, that this is actually God until about the middle to the end of the chapter. And towards the middle of the end of the chapter, he begins to catch on and he starts realizing who he's dealing with. Um, so he only really like the narrator in Genesis 18 tells us readers at the very, very beginning that um, that this is God. But Abraham only realizes that later on. So these are these are manifestations of God that look very human. But we're at the same time, when, when we put them all together, we realize they're massively different from a human being because we humans have only one body. We have only one self. We can't fragment while remaining unified. If you take us apart, we're just dead. Um, we can't overlap with somebody else, but God is really radically different and radically mysterious precisely for the fluidity texts, precisely because God, um, God has more than one body, more than one manifestation. God can be a unity even when God is a plurality. Um, that's why these, I think, are still monotheistic texts. There's still only one, one deity. Um, but this deity has multiple manifestations. So in a funny way, I think that the fluidity texts, although initially they seem a little more polytheistic and they, are, they, they, they do share something for real with actual polytheistic texts from ancient Canaan, Assyria, and Babylonia, I think that in their own sophisticated way, they're also very monotheistic because one of the main ideas of monotheism is that God is fundamentally transcendent not part of the world, fundamentally different from humanity. And in these texts, God is very mysteriously different from humanity in a way that we can't quite get our heads around, uh, precisely because God retains a unity, even as God has more than one manifestation. And even, I think, more than one physical manifestation, more than one body.
Right. Yeah. Well, I think I, there are other biblical texts in, in, in which it works differently. I think for the priestly texts, God does have one body, and the priestly texts use the word kavod to describe that body. Kavod often translated as the glory or the presence of God. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but for the priestly texts, well, God's body might seem similar to a human body. It has the same basic shape, more or less, as a human mm -hmm. body. In Genesis, I think, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. In Ezekiel, chapter 1, also verses 20, verse 27, as it, as it happens. Now, Ezekiel is, is closely, closely related to the priestly texts of the Pentateuch. Um, God has one body, but that body isn't made of flesh. It's made of an intense energy that's so intense that if you were to look at it directly, even from a distance, you would be killed. And that, that one body, it can become, it can be very small. It can grow, grow very, very large. So there's one body that has the shape of a human body, but it has a different substance and it has an ability to be huge, to be small. Mm -hmm. So there again, there's the sense that, well, God is kind of like us, but completely different from us. In a different way, the P text, which is not a fluidity text, because God only has one self and one body for P, is also doing what the, the, what the fluidity texts are doing. They're trying to describe a sense in which God is like us, and then God is infinitely not like us and something that we can't quite understand. Yeah. Yeah. This this is a, these are amazing topics, and as we mentioned before, we, we are unable to uh, to fathom God. So uh, these type of subjects are um, yeah something that we can talk about uh, a couple more hours. But I wanted to to want to ask you one more question. Uh, in your book, you already mentioned that uh, the New Testament also attests to the the fluidity model. And uh, uh, one of the quotes that you said is that uh, the Trinity model, compared to what we, for, for what the, the Bible like holistically is talking about in, in certain places, um, it, it does not scave away the Trinity model, and especially also not the incarnation. There was also something that you were talking about in the Christian, in the Christian theology, the incarnation in, in, uh, in contrast with the fluidity model is possible, and it is a perfectly Jewish one, you said. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that um, the, the, in the, the New Testament's idea, for example, in the first chapter of John of, um, well, actually the opening chapters of John altogether, of God coming down and overlapping with Jesus um, or God being at once um, the Logos who is with God and the separate from God, but is also God. That sounds like very strange language, but when you're familiar with the fluidity model from the ancient Near East, which some biblical, some texts of the Hebrew Bible um, contain, uh, I think that we realize that, that those sort of models you're getting in the New Testament are actually not new models in Judaism. Uh, these, this is a, a first century uh, type of Judaism that is hearkening back to the fluidity model that ancient Israel had inherited from the ancient Near East. Uh, the idea of the Trinity, which I think most New Testament scholars would say is not, is not yet quite fully present in the New Testament, but gets articulated um, in post-New Testament literature, the idea of the Trinity too is all is 
I think it's really a new way of repackaging the ancient Israelite fluidity model. Right. I think that that's interesting. And when I was writing the book, this was really quite surprising to me because I think generally Jews, obviously Jews don't believe in the Trinity, of course. I don't believe in the Trinity yet. Um, but Jews not only don't believe in the Trinity, I think Jewish philosophers um, and Jews just generally tend to think that the, the Trinity is a non-monotheistic model of, uh, of God. I think a lot of Jews think of the idea of the Trinity as somebody's taking a polytheistic idea and sort of smushing it on top of a monotheistic foundation. Um, I think a lot of people would even say that the, the, the idea of the Trinity is a is maybe part of the Greek polytheistic heritage of, of Christianity, that in Christianity, you're sort of combining a Hebrew monotheism with a Hellenistic polytheism. And that the result is the idea of the Trinity um, in, in early, already in early Christianity, maybe some of the ideas of incarnation um, and the idea of the logos in, in the New Testament itself. But much to my own surprise, um, when I was writing this book, it occurred to me that, well, actually, the Trinity is a kind of fluidity model. It's the idea that one deity can have more than one manifestation, more than one aspect, more than one person. And if that's the case, then this is the Trinity is just a new way of utilizing a much more ancient um, theological model that was native to ancient Israel. Um, it, and in fact, when you start thinking about it that way, this idea that three can be one, it's not so radically different from the Kabbalistic idea um, that there are 10 major manifestations of God in the created world, manifestations that are known as the Sfirot. And right. Kabbalah really emphasizes you shouldn't think of these 10 different spherot as different beings. You should never pray to one of these spherot by itself. These, are, these 10 spherot are all somehow one. Um, but in the world, they appear to us um, as 10 different manifestations, but they're interacting. They, they come from a unity and they ultimately achieve a unity in the long run. Um, and even, again, on the Sabbath, they achieve a greater degree of unity. Well, if, it, if within Judaism there are Kabbalists who consider themselves monotheistic, who believe in ten sefirot, well, then I think that Jews have to realize that the, the Trinity, although we don't believe in the Trinity, the Trinity is based on a theological model that we also do see as present in Judaism. I think it's present in, it's present in, in that something similar, not identical, but something analogous is happening in Kabbalah. And I think that when one goes to, back to JE texts in the Pentateuch and some other biblical texts, um, the idea that shame and kavod and panim, God's name, God's um, presence, God's face, um, can act on their own, not merely on behalf of God, but as part of God, that idea is analogous to the Trinitarian idea that God can have more than one person. In other words, the Trinity is its own development, not simply of a Hellenistic polytheistic idea that's sort of grafted into a monotheistic Hebrew um, foundation or tree, if you will. That's actually something that grows out of the monotheistic tree, to, or out of the monotheistic soil to begin with. Right, interesting. 
what you didn't agree that uh, uh, like on, on this concept of um, uh, of revelation that throughout time we more and more and more know a bit more about God for instance are you of the agreement that Isaiah knew more about God as far as a human being can know than Moses that's an interesting question first before getting to Isaiah and Moses sure. um, yes I, I do agree that over time th that um, we can we can gain from previous generations new insights into God uh, we can stand on the shoulders of previous generations we can combine previous generations insights to go somewhere where those previous generations hadn't gone I think that it's often the case that we might even be able in our own new setting to understand more fully what somebody said centuries or even millennia ago. I think that that sometimes happens that somebody says something and the full import and even meaning of what the first person said isn't understood until centuries later. So in that regard, I think that um, in, in many respects, um, revelation in some sense continues um, or maybe we, we hear nuances in an older revelation that older generations didn't hear. So even if it was still just a, a revelation that occurred in the past, at some level, that revelation continues to speak and even speaks in new ways as we go into the future. I think that this is an idea that one finds in a certain kind of Jewish theology. I, I deal a lot more with that theology in my book on Revelation at Sinai. Um, so I, I think that that's a very traditional kind of Jewish theology, more at home in the more mystical or Kabbalistic strains of Judaism and their predecessors in rabbinic literature than maybe than in the, in the rationalist point of view. So, so I, generally, I agree with that. I, I also think it's the case, though, that there were insights in the past that we've lost that are really useful insights that we need to go back to. And in a sense, that's what I'm doing in the book on God's bodies. I'm saying that there was this fluidity theology in ancient Israel and people have kind of lost it. We know about its, its later manifestations in Jewish mysticism, uh, also in some parts of rabbinic literature, but the fact that it's got its own form, that it's present in its own way in the Bible itself is something I think that, that we've really lost. And the whole point of that, that book that I wrote was to kind of recover that. So that's, there, there may also be respects in which there are older revelations that, um, there are older revelations that that know something that we've, we we ought to try to, to recover. Mm -hmm. As for Isaiah and Moses, I, I wouldn't want to go too much into to specifics. Um, it certainly is a you know a bedrock idea of Judaism that that Moses was the greatest of the prophets, and so I think that I'd be hesitant about making that statement that I that Isaiah knew more than Moses, but I think I would be comfortable saying that. Isaiah expresses aspects of, of God and articulates aspects of God more, um, um, more explicitly that in, in Moses' case are not articulated as explicitly. Um, I, I think I would put it that way. No, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting answer. Thank you. And just touching upon what you said before, that when John says, for instance, uses in his prologue in the beginning of the word, what was his God, that whole concept, he didn't pluck that out of thin air, right? So A, he didn't plug it out of thin air, and B, he's not only getting it indirectly from Plato. 
He's not just getting it from Greek culture. Certainly Hellenistic culture is, is contributing to the way he's formulating us. Um, the wording he uses probably is indebted indirectly to Plato, but that, that's a matter of the wording. The conception of a deity who is multiple and yet still fundamentally one, that's an idea that John is getting from his Jewish heritage and from the heritage of Hebrew scripture. So, thank you. Yeah, it was a very interesting, Dr. Benjamin Sommer. Yeah, what can I say, guys? If you love this subject, you already know where to find it. I'll put the link to the book in the description, of course, 100%. Dr. Sommer, what can I say? It has been a delight to have you here. I wish you nothing but the best in your academical work, in your personal life, in your spiritual life. Um, may everything that is good be, be with you and your family, of course. I've enjoyed it a lot, and I cannot wait to, to put, put this one online and to edify everyone even more. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your diligence. And yeah, may God bless you. And hopefully maybe in the future we'll speak to each other again. That would be great. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, Vartan. Bye, guys Bye -bye. and girls. Guys and girls, thank you everybody for watching, and I'll put it on next time.